Well, hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. And in addition to everybody we have here on site, I know we have a bunch of people joining us online. I wanna welcome some of them. Let's welcome in Adam, Cherokee, and Chris, all from different parts of Oklahoma. And Gracie is joining us right now from Costa Rica. So welcome to her as well. And everyone else in our online audience, would you put your hands together? Welcome them in today, yeah. Glad you guys are joining us. And I am excited to be here with you guys for a couple different reasons. First of all, my Kentucky Wildcats beat the number five Tennessee Volunteers at Tennessee. So yeah, give it up for Kentucky. One person, that's great. But I'm excited. And if you don't care, that's all right, I do. So uh, I am pumped because it was a much, much needed win. We've had a rough season so far, but maybe this will help everything turn around. I don't know. But I'm also excited because I just love worshiping with you guys. I mean, First Church, you're just an awesome church family, and I love having the opportunity every week to worship together as a family, and so thank you for that. And I'm pumped to jump into week two of our series, Life's Too Short. And if you were here last Sunday when we launched this series, you know what this is all about. We're talking about the subject of life, how life is brief, life is short, and it's too short for us to waste. It's too valuable, too precious for us to waste. And that's why there are scriptures in the Bible like this one right here found in Ephesians when it says, so then be careful how you walk, be careful how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, our lives may be short, but it doesn't mean they're not significant. God has big plans for us. And during this brief life that we have, God wants us to make the most of the time that he has given us. And the way that we do that is by seeking his will, seeking his purpose for our lives, not by following our own desires, what we think life is all about, or by listening to the wrong voices, but by seeking his will, his purpose for our lives. And when we do that, when we align our lives with his purpose, we will see him work in even greater ways. And you know, when I think about that, that God has a greater purpose for our lives that he wants us to be a part of, he wants us to join, I sometimes think about coaching little kids. And you guys who know me, you know that I coach my kids' soccer teams and other sports teams, and it's a lot of fun, but kids often get distracted, especially during important parts of the game when they shouldn't be distracted. And I saw this video just the other day of a dad who was coaching his son. His son was playing goalie in a soccer game, and he was trying to coach his son to get him in the right position, and he's standing by the goal where his son is, and I want you to take a look at what happened. See this video right here. Now, in case you didn't see it, here it is in slow motion, okay? So the ball is kicked in front of the goal, possibly a shot, I don't know, maybe a pass, but he kicks it here. And right as it's going in, the dad who's standing to the side of the goal puts his son right in front of the ball so that he stops it. Dad of the year right there, okay? I get it, I've been there, not quite, but I do, I thought about it. But what's interesting is that video is like four years old now, and I just saw it the other day. And so there were some people that talked to that dad that interviewed him, local media, and he said, you know, I really wasn't trying to throw my son in front of the ball to stop it. I was just trying to get him in position so that he could make a play. And you know, when I heard that line, I thought, I think that's what God wants for us 
See, God is working in this world. I don't believe that God is on vacation or taking a nap or resting. I believe our God is very, very active in the world around us. And he has a great game plan and he is working to accomplish his purposes. But sometimes we're asleep to what he's doing. We are distracted to the point that we can't see all the ways that he is working all around us. And what God is telling us is, I want you to be part of my game plan. I want you to be part of the game. I want you to be in position to do something and not just anything Thing, but to play a significant role in the game because I have great plans for you. And so when the Bible says that God wants us to make the most of our time, I'm convinced that what God is telling us to keep the illustration going is it's time to get in the game. It's time to stop being distracted and get in the game because I have a great role for you to play in the game if you will just position yourself where I want you to be. And just like in a game, there's a clock that will eventually run out. I think God is telling us this because he knows that our time on this earth is short and all of us have an expiration date. Now we may not wanna talk about this. We may not wanna mention it. It's maybe kind of a morbid thought, but it's true. And I'm not somebody who backs away from truth just because it makes people feel uncomfortable. The Bible repeatedly tells us that all of us have an expiration date. And this is the illustration that the scripture uses. If you look in the book of James, it says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while. We looked at this verse last week, and then it vanishes. You're a mist, that's your life, that appears for a little while and then vanishes. This is how the Bible describes our lives on this earth. We're here for a moment, and then we're gone almost as soon as we appear. We're a mist that appears for a little while, and then it's gone. Now, I know that might be discouraging or depressing to some people, but it's not supposed to be. The Bible tells us this for a reason, because God knows that lasting freedom and fulfillment come when we align our days with God's greater purpose for our lives. We receive freedom because we know that this life that we're living right now isn't all that there is. We know that this life is temporary. So the pain and the heartache and the hurt and the sickness and the suffering and the stress and all that stuff that we experience in this present life, it is temporary and one day it will fade away also. So we have freedom in knowing that the way things are right now are not the way that things will always be. But then also we can receive fulfillment, a sense of fulfillment, because we can live for what really matters. We're not gonna waste our time chasing after pursuits that are insignificant, pursuits that don't eternally matter, but we can live for what ultimately matters, what eternally matters in God's eyes. God has a greater purpose for us and we can have freedom and fulfillment when we align our days, our time with his greater purpose. But we also have an enemy who wants to keep us from living out the greater purpose that God has for us. Satan wants to stop us from living out the bigger plans that God has for you and for me. And one of the greatest tools that Satan uses to keep us from living out God's plans for us is what we're gonna talk about today and it can be summed up in one word, it's the word bitterness. Satan knows 
that bitterness can hold us back from being who God is calling us to be. Because when we are bitter, when we hold a grudge, when we allow for resentment to control us, then we are allowing for someone or something else to have control over our emotions, our feelings, our happiness, our joy, our satisfaction, our contentment, our fulfillment. We're allowing something or someone else to control our emotions other than God. And when that happens, we stop allowing for God to lead us and we allow for our bitterness, our grudges to call the shots. Satan knows that nothing can hold us back from God's greater plans for our lives like holding a grudge. And that's why the Bible gives us this warning. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you because it will, corrupting many, and it will corrupt those around you. See, the Bible describes bitterness as a poison that we consume ourselves because we're mad at somebody else which doesn't make any sense, but haven't we all done it before? I once heard an old, old preacher illustrate it like this. He said, you know, bitterness or holding a grudge. He said, it's like setting yourself on fire because you're mad at somebody else and hoping that the other person will die at a distance from smoke in inhalation. I mean, that's what bitterness is like. And it may be an odd image, but I think it's true. And we've all been there before. Bitterness is a poison that we take ourselves because we're mad at somebody else. And it feels empowering in the moment. It feels like we're being strong in the moment because we're not letting somebody else go. We're going to hold them accountable. We're going to repay them for what they did to us. But even though bitterness in the moment, holding a grudge in the moment, feels empowering, it's really enslaving. Let me put it this way. Bitterness is equivalent to bondage because this is how bitterness works. It's like if I poured water in this awesome first church tumbler right here and I held it out. It's pretty easy to do, right? Most of you could hold this cup just like that if you wanted to. But what if I asked you to hold this same cup full of water for an hour? Could you do it? Maybe. I've got a feeling after a while you'd start to struggle. Maybe your hand would start to shake just a little bit. Maybe your arm get a little sore. But what if I asked you to hold this same cup full of water for an entire day? You probably couldn't do it. And I couldn't do it either. Now, the cup weighs the same amount. The weight hasn't necessarily changed, but it starts to affect us differently. And it starts to weigh us down to the point that it causes us to be sore. And it might even do some damage to our bodies if we try to hold it for too long. And that's what a grudge does. That's what bitterness does. At first we hold it out and we feel empowered and we think, hey, this isn't that bad. I can handle this. But over time, it starts to weigh us down in a way like we never thought possible. And it starts to do damage to our lives. See, bitterness may seem like a good thing. And it's what the world tells us we're allowed to do. But the Bible repeatedly warns us to stay away from it. The Bible repeatedly warns us that life's too short 
to hold a grudge. Because if you spend your days holding a grudge, it's going to hold on to you. And it's going to keep you from living out God's will. Because something or someone else is going to have control over your emotions, your feelings, your purpose, rather than God. And so what we're doing in this series is we're looking at different biblical examples of people who lived for God's greater purpose. And last week we looked at Moses from the Old Testament. And we're going to look at somebody else from the Old Testament today who's a great example of forgiveness. And that's a guy named Joseph. And most people, when they read about Joseph's life, their first response is, if anybody had the right to hold a grudge, if anybody had the right to be bitter, it was Joseph in the Old Testament. But we see that Joseph is this model example of forgiveness. Yet this is why they say he had the right to hold a grudge, if he wanted to. Because Joseph was basically dealt a pretty bad hand. I mean, not at first. He was actually the favorite son of his father, Jacob. Jacob was a guy who had 12 sons and some daughters as well, but Jacob played favorites. Now, here's what you need to know. Jacob had 12 sons from four different women. So kind of a dysfunctional family, and we see this play out as time goes on because Jacob not only had 12 sons from four different women, he also played favorites. He had a favorite son who was Joseph. Joseph was the 11th of the 12 boys. And Jacob also had a favorite wife and he let everybody know it. So much so when it comes to Joseph, look at what the Bible says. It says, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe or coat, as some translations say. So notice the Bible doesn't say that Jacob had more in common with Joseph than the rest of his children, or that Jacob and Joseph shared common interests or something like that. No, that's not what it says. It says that Jacob loved Joseph more, and everybody knew it. And Jacob didn't try to hide this. In fact, he gives Joseph a special gift that he didn't give anybody else. He gives Joseph a special expensive coat to wear. And in this day and age, clothing was a sign of significance and favor and importance. And most people in this day and age only had one outfit of clothes that they wore over and over and over again. I know that would kill some of you, but I only had one outfit of clothes. That was it. And so for Joseph to be given this special coat that was extremely expensive, it was a sign of favor and importance and significance. And he got this coat when none of his other siblings did. And his other siblings, they noticed. In fact, the Bible says this, but his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. See, what is Jacob, their dad, doing? Jacob is setting Joseph up for failure because by showing him obvious favoritism, his brothers start to hate him. So much so that his brothers come up with this scheme, this plan to get rid of Joseph. And this is what they do. This is a quick summary, and this took a while to all play out, but basically what happens is they capture Joseph, they throw him in a whale, a cistern, 
where they keep him as a prisoner for a little while. And then they take his expensive coat and they tear it up. They put animal's blood on it and they take it to their father and say that a wild beast of the fields came and killed Joseph, Jacob's favorite son. And Jacob mourns over the loss of his son. And then, you know what they do with Joseph? They sell him as a slave to some traveling traders, Ishmaelite traders, and eventually Joseph is taken to Egypt, a foreign country where he had never been before, where he will spend the next several years as a slave. So Joseph goes from being the favorite in his father's household, and apparently his father Jacob had some money and some influence, so that meant that Joseph had some money and some influence. He goes from being the favorite in his father's household to being a slave in a foreign land where he had never been before. If anybody had the right to be bitter and hold a grudge, people would say, it was Joseph after everything that he had been through. But it just gets worse. He ends up being a slave in this guy named Potiphar's house. And Potiphar really liked Joseph a whole lot. But so did Potiphar's wife in a much different way though. Potiphar's wife wanted to have an affair with Joseph. Joseph is young, probably in his early 20s at this point. And the Bible says that he's good looking. And so Potiphar's wife wants to sleep with him. And she tries to seduce him over and over and over again. And Joseph refuses her advances. And on one occasion, he says this to her. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her, even be around her because he knew what a temptation it was. Now, what we need to understand is that Joseph at this point is in his early 20s. And because he's a slave, he will probably never have the chance to get married. He will probably never have a sexual relationship with someone. And so this woman is trying to seduce him. This woman of influence and prestige. It's the master's wife. She can keep it hidden. Some people would say... Why not, Joseph? After everything that you've been through, you deserve it. But Joseph refuses. Why? Because Joseph knew that his time on this earth didn't belong to him. It belonged to God. His time belonged to God, not him. And he knew that God had a greater purpose for him and he was going to trust in God's greater purpose for his life. He was not going to throw away God's purpose for his life for temporary pleasure. He knew that his time didn't belong to him, it belonged to God. And so the next time that that coworker flirts with you or you're home alone with your laptop or phone or tablet, or maybe you're in the back seat of a car with somebody who's the opposite sex. Just remember your time here doesn't belong to you. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible says you were bought at a price. Your life belongs to him and he has a greater plan for you. And imagine what would have happened if Joseph would have given in to Potiphar's wife's advances. If Potiphar would have caught him, Joseph would have been killed on the spot. Now, God will end up using Joseph to save thousands of lives. 
And it's possible that Joseph could have forfeited all that for a moment of temporary pleasure. Guys, God has greater plans in store for you. And it's not that God can't forgive that sin. God could have forgiven Joseph. And if Joseph repented, he would have. But it doesn't mean that Joseph would have been able to be used by God like God wanted to use him. Don't give up God's purposes for you for temporary pleasure that will be here one day and gone the very next. Your time doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And he has a greater purpose in store for you. And so Joseph repeatedly says no to Potiphar's wife, but Potiphar's wife doesn't take this very well. And one day she accuses him of trying to seduce her, basically of raping her. And so Joseph ends up in prison. Now Joseph does the right thing, but he ends up in prison for doing the right thing. And he's in prison for years. And it gets worse while he's in prison. He befriends this guy who was a servant of Pharaoh, the king over Egypt. He was the cupbearer to the king. And the cupbearer had also been falsely accused. And the cupbearer tells Joseph, if I ever get out of prison, I'm gonna remember you, buddy. And the cupbearer gets out of prison and guess what? He forgets about Joseph. And Joseph stays in prison another two years after that. If anybody had the right to be bitter about life circumstances, Joseph is that guy. And yet... He doesn't stay bitter. Instead, he focuses on God and eventually the cupbearer remembers Joseph because his boss, the Pharaoh, the king over Egypt, has a bad dream and the cupbearer remembers that Joseph is able to, through God's power, interpret dreams and he says, oh, Pharaoh, I know somebody who might be able to help you out with these weird dreams you've been having. And Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams and he says, there's a famine that's coming and you need to get prepared for the famine. And the Pharaoh is so pleased with Joseph that he ends up putting Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. He's second in command of all of Egypt. Nobody in Egypt has more power than Joseph except for Pharaoh. Joseph goes from being a slave to being the second in command over all of Egypt. Do you think this is happenstance? No. The Bible repeatedly tells us that the Lord was with Joseph. God hadn't abandoned him. God hadn't left him through all these bad circumstances. And if Joseph had been bitter and mad and continued to hold a grudge against those who had hurt him and continued to harbor resentment and all that sort of stuff, that he could have missed what God was setting up for him. But instead, Joseph remained focused on God knowing that God had a plan for all this. And so the Lord continued to be with Joseph. And I want you to know, if you're going through a rough time today, God has not abandoned you. He is still with you. Keep looking to him. Now, after Joseph gets Egypt ready for this famine, Egypt becomes the breadbasket of the world because no other nation is prepared for this famine. And so people from all over who are hungry and starving come to Egypt for food. And guess who comes to Egypt? Jacob, Joseph's father, is still alive. And Jacob sends Joseph's other brothers to Egypt in order to beg for food because they're starving. And so Joseph's brothers get to stand before him who's now second in command over all of Egypt and ask him for food. 
But what's interesting is they don't recognize Joseph because Joseph has been living in Egypt for a long time now, for years now. And so Joseph, he dresses like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. I mean, he looks like an Egyptian now. And they haven't seen him for years. And so they don't recognize him. And let me ask, what would you do? Joseph is second in command of Egypt. And now his brothers are on his turf. They're on Egyptian land. And Joseph could have had them arrested, could have had them put in chains, tortured, beaten. He could have had them kicked out of Egypt. He even could have had them killed if he wanted to. They're on his turf now, and nobody has more power in the land than him besides Pharaoh. He could have done whatever he wanted to to them. And if you had that type of authority over those who had hurt you, those who had caused significant harm in your life, what would you do? Given the opportunity, given the chance, what would you do? I heard the story the other day about a woman who said that whenever her ex-husband died, she was gonna dance on his grave. Well, her ex-husband heard about it And so when he heard that his ex-wife wanted to dance on his grave, he made plans to be buried at sea. So uh, I know it's not a great joke, but I throw it out there because it was getting kind of tense and I needed something, okay? But isn't that true though? Isn't that how the world responds? We just wanna get back at people and repay evil with evil. That's how the world responds. And what would you do in this moment? Well, Joseph struggles a little bit. This is awkward for Joseph and it takes him a little while, but eventually... Joseph completely forgives his brothers who had so hurt him. And he tells them to come back to Egypt with their families to bring their father back. And he gives them land and he gives them influence and he gives them jobs and wealth. And his family is extremely prosperous in the land of Egypt, all because Joseph forgave them. And this sounds too good to be true. And his brothers get this so much so that when their father Jacob eventually dies in Egypt, they're worried that now Joseph is going to try to get back at them, that he was just being nice to them where their daddy was still alive. Now that daddy's dead, maybe Joseph will come back and get them. In fact, this is what the Bible says. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back? for all the wrongs we did to him. Why would his brothers think that? Because that's how the world operates. That's human nature right there. What if now Joseph decides to hold a grudge against us and pay us back for all the things that we did to him? And Joseph gets word that his brothers are thinking this way. And look at what he says to them. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph could have easily paid them back for what they did. But he chose not to. Why? Because his focus was on God. See, we can't always choose our circumstances, but we get to choose how we respond to those circumstances. 
And will we respond to our circumstances as God would respond? Or will we respond as the world would respond? Because do you know how old Joseph is at this point when he's having this conversation with his brothers? He's in his mid-50s. You know how old Joseph will be when he dies? He lives to be 110 years old. That means this is just half time for Joseph, okay? He still has a whole lot of life left. He's in his mid-50s. He's gonna live to be 110. He's still had a whole lot of life left. And what if in this moment, he would have decided to let bitterness control him rather than God? He could have wasted the rest of the days that he had and he still had a lot of life left. And I believe that that's what God wants you and me to know today. We still have a lot of life left. You still have life left to live. Don't waste whatever time you have left holding a grudge, being bitter towards someone who may not even realize that you're mad at them. Don't continue to waste your life holding on to resentment and grudges and bitterness that's just going to hold you in bondage and keep you from living the greater purpose that God has for you. Jesus tells us this. In Matthew, Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Did you notice this? Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. How do you live with God's character? How do you reflect God's nature? How do you show that you are a son or a daughter of God? By loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. You see, forgiveness is essential to live out God's greater purpose for our lives. And if you are a follower of Jesus, forgiveness is not an option. I know it's hard to hear, but forgiveness is not an option. Listen to Jesus' warning. But if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. That is a scary statement, a scary verse. But why is Jesus so direct here? Because he knows that if we choose not to forgive somebody, if we refuse to forgive someone, then we're being controlled by something or someone else other than God and his will for our lives. And so the Bible tells us that forgiveness is essential if we want to reflect God's character and if we want to live out his greater plans. But with all that said, it's not easy, is it? I mean, let's be real. The Bible tells us we need to forgive as God has forgiven us, but it's not easy. In fact, I'm convinced that forgiving others is probably one of the hardest things that God asks you and me to do. But God has provided us with some help. And that's why we get examples like that of Joseph in scripture, because through his word, he gives us some help for how to get there. Remember that verse that says, pray for those who persecute you? We can't do this on our own. We need help from God in order to do this. So what can we learn from the example of a guy like Joseph who was a godly man who used, the, used his time to the fullest? Well, this is what we can learn. 
Forgiveness isn't a feeling, it's a choice. And so if you're struggling right now to forgive somebody, you need to remember forgiveness isn't a feeling, it's a choice. If you wait until you feel like forgiving somebody to forgive them, it's never gonna happen because our nature is not to want to forgive somebody else. Forgiveness isn't a feeling, it's a choice. It's a conscious choice that we make, a decision that we make. Because if we wait until we feel like it, like I said, that day is never gonna come. But we have to make the choice in the midst of our hurt to say, I do not want this other person to hold me captive. I do not want this other person to control my emotions, my feelings. I am tired of letting them hold me in bondage, hold me back, depress me and rob me of joy and steal my contentment. I am tired of allowing them to live rent free in my head and I'm not gonna do it anymore. So we make the choice to forgive them even though we don't feel like it. And when we release our offenders, we're not just releasing them, we're also releasing ourselves. Because as I said a second ago, sometimes the people who offended us don't even realize how bad they offended us. We're the ones who are taking the poison, though we're mad at them. And did you notice Joseph's words? You intended to harm me. Now, Joseph could have camped out right there. He could have said, you intended to harm me, and then gone through the entire list of everything that his brothers did to him and just kind of camped out right there, but he doesn't. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended to harm me, and I acknowledge that but I am seeing this through the lens of God's greater purpose. Now, Joseph didn't pretend that the hurt didn't happen. And the next thing, if you're struggling to forgive somebody that I think the Bible wants you to remember is this, forgiveness isn't pretending. Contrary to popular opinion or to what people often say, forgiveness isn't forgetting. You've probably heard that before. We just need to forgive and forget. You just need to forgive and forget. You've probably heard people say, you may have even heard that in church before. And not only is that impractical because it's impossible for us to forget on demand. I mean, we just can't do that. Our brains aren't capable of forgetting on demand. Not only is it impractical, I don't think it's a biblical concept. I mean, when Joseph's brothers came to him and they were worried that he was gonna pay them back for all the evil they had done to him, did Joseph say, I don't even know what you're talking about. I I don't even remember what you did to me. No, he says, you intended to hurt me. He knows exactly what his brothers did to him. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Now, some people will say it's a biblical concept because they misquote verses like this one right here in Jeremiah, where it says, for I will forgive, God says, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And people say, right there, it says that the Lord is going to remember our sins no more. So we need to make sure that we don't remember the sins that people have done against us. But the reason why people misuse this verse is because they're trying to read this through our modern Western eyes. See, in our mindset, remembering is a mental activity. But in their day and age, remembering was an act of the will. It was a physical act. And so when you remembered something, it meant you were going to act in accordance to how somebody else has treated you. That's why, let me give you this example. In, in the book of Genesis, Noah and the flood, remember that? And Noah's on the ark with all the animals. And the Bible says this, it says, the waters flooded the earth for 150 days, but God 
remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him on the ark. So is this how this played out? Like God tells Noah to build this ark, get all the animals, and he floods the earth and the water's on the earth for all these days. And God's just strolling along in heaven. And all of a sudden he says, oh wait, Noah, I forgot about that dude. And all those animals I told him to collect. Oh, I forgot about him. I better do something about Noah. Okay, Noah, I now remember you. Is that how that worked? No. By saying that God remembered him, it meant it was time for God to act. It was time for God to move. See, when the Bible says that God will remember our sins no more, it means that he will not act in accordance to what our sins deserve. He will not remember our sins in the sense that now he will give us what we deserve. Because when he remembers our sins, what we then deserve is punishment from him. But he says, I am not going to treat them as they deserve to be treated. God doesn't forget our sins as if they're wiped from his mind. I mean, aren't the sins of people recorded in the Bible? Do you think that every time that we're like studying the Bible and we come across like the sin of, I don't know, Abraham or David or whoever or Peter, you know, we see the sins that people committed that God is up in heaven like, oh yeah, I forgot that I put that in the Bible. Yeah, I forgot that they did that. No, it's not wiped from God's memory, but by remembering their sins no more, it means I will not act as their sins deserve. I will not respond as their sins deserve. And that's what God is asking us to do. To not treat people as they deserve to be treated, but to treat people better than they deserve to be treated. And that's why forgiving someone is always an act of faith. It's saying I am giving up my right to define what's fair and I'm gonna let God be the judge. I'm gonna let God be the one who seeks vengeance if vengeance needs to be sought. I'm gonna let God handle this because I know there is coming a day when God is going to make all things right and God will do what is right. I'm not God. Did you notice Joseph's words? He says, am I in the place of God? Am I the judge over men's hearts? God knows what's in your heart and God knows what's in your offender's heart. He knows what's in all of our hearts and God is the ultimate judge. And that's why forgiveness is an act of faith because what we are saying is, God, I am going to trust you to handle this. I'm going to trust you to make everything right. And forgiveness is a gift because somebody else doesn't deserve it. But let me be clear. Forgiveness is a gift, but trust is earned. I'm not saying that the Bible is teaching us that we should be a bunch of doormats. That whenever somebody wrongs us, especially when they repeatedly wrong us or hurt us, that we should just continue to allow them to do so. That's not what I'm saying here. Especially when it comes to abuse situations and all that, I'm not saying that you should let somebody continue to abuse you or bully you or anything. I'm not saying that at all, and the Bible isn't teaching that. Forgiveness is a gift trust is earned. And so you forgive somebody in the sense of, you don't want to repay them evil with evil. You don't want to get back at them. You, you're not gonna gossip about them. You're not gonna talk bad about them behind their back. You're not going to harbor bitterness toward them in your heart. That's forgiveness. But it doesn't mean you have to welcome them back in into a situation where they're going to continue to harm you or abuse you. Trust is earned. But forgiveness is a gift. This is what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is freeing yourself from hatred and the need to seek vengeance. Because if the gospel is not true, 
then go ahead and repay evil with evil. Go ahead and seek vengeance. Go ahead and pay somebody back for what they did to you. Because if the gospel isn't true, then you don't believe that God will one day make all things right. But if the gospel is true, and I believe it is, then I believe in his promise that one day God is going to restore all things. One day God will judge the world. One day God will make all things right. And I trust his judgment as God over all. And I know that I can forgive somebody else now in this temporary moment because no amount of forgiveness that I have to show somebody else compares to the amount of forgiveness that Jesus showed me when he went to the cross. So can we forgive? You bet we can. Is it hard? Yeah, I think it was hard for Jesus. I don't think the cross was easy. Do you? But we can forgive because we have been forgiven. It's a gift that we've been given and it's a gift that God wants us to show others. And when we do, we will change the world around us. See, the Bible teaches this in the book of Romans. It says, don't let evil overcome you, but overcome evil by doing good. That's what we're supposed to do. I have a friend who preaches at a pretty large church and I've heard him tell the story before that when he was in Bible college, that a bunch of boys in his dorm, they were doing some mischievous things and they accidentally (laughs) caught their dorm room on fire. And so the school found out and wanted to make sure that the boys either repaid the damage that they caused or they would get kicked out of school. My friend was friends with the boys who caused the fire, but he wasn't a part of that group that day. Typically he was, but not that day. And so he didn't do anything wrong to cause the fire at least but his name was turned in as being part of that group. And the school said that for his part, my friend owned $600 to repay the damages. He didn't have that money and so he called his parents and his parents said, we think you need to get a second job and pay off that money. And he said, but I didn't do it, I'm innocent. His parents said, can you prove it? He said, no. And they said, well, get a second job and make payments to the school, pay that money off. So he did. And he got down to the very last payment and he called his mom and dad and said, I've got one payment left and I'm done. And they said, this is what we want you to do. We want you to keep making payments beyond that $600. He's like, what? I I should not have been paying the first $600. I don't want to pay any more. They said, keep doing it and treat the school better than it deserves to be treated because that's what Jesus did for you. And so he did. He kept making payments to the school. He put the extra money towards a scholarship fund. And after he had repaid double the amount that the school said he owed, some of the school administrators came to him and apologized and said, we know you were innocent and we're sorry that we made you pay that first amount. Because nobody who was guilty would do something like this. And his friends even apologized for not standing up for him. Now, I'm not saying that that's how it's gonna be every single time that you show forgiveness to others who don't deserve it. But I'm not really sure what our world would look like if Christians always did show the type of forgiveness that Jesus is talking about. Because we don't often do it, do we? 
See, the way that we change the world is not by getting back at the world or showing the world what it deserves or by fighting the world with the world's strength and the world's powers or the world's weapons. No, the Bible says we overcome evil with good. And that's why to forgive doesn't mean we're weak. To forgive means we belong to God. To forgive doesn't mean we're weak. To forgive means we're God's. And that's how we show the world who we truly belong to. Life's too short to hold a grudge. Don't waste your life letting bitterness control you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for today and the time we've had to open up your word. And I just pray, Father, that we would not waste the time that you have given us. And if there is somebody in this room today or online who is struggling with bitterness and forgiving someone, may they seek you for help because you want to help us out in this because you don't want anything holding us back from your greater purposes. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.